Hello, and welcome to the latest Frontline Gastroenterology podcast. My name is Sunny Radju, and I'm a trainee associate editor at The Journal. Today, we are joined by Dr. Peter Payne, consultant gastroenterologist at Salford Royal NHS Foundation Trust. Dr. Payne has a special interest in patients with complex functional abdominal symptoms and has recently authored the review article, Jejunal Feeding, When Is It the Right Thing to Do? Available now in Frontline Gastroenterology. Dr. Payne, your paper was really comprehensive and useful. Could you try and summarise it for the readership? Yeah, so what we've attempted to do uh, in this paper is a a practical approach to what we're increasingly encountering as uh, particularly as nutrition teams, which is patients who don't have the usual obvious structural reason to require jejunal feeding, but present more with functional symptoms. And in that group of patients, I think it's much less clear what the underlying cause is, and also what the, the risk benefits are to, uh, to approaching more invasive, particularly jejunal feeding. So what we're trying to do in the paper is to take people through what the differential diagnosis might be and a pragmatic approach to, as a team, approaching the, the risk benefits. I see. So these functional questions are very interesting. And in my practice, I think the number that I'm seeing seems to be going up. Um, do you have any thoughts as to why this might be? Yeah, patients with functional diagnosis have historically always formed quite a large part of secondary care practice as well as primary care. But I think there is, you're quite right, a perception that we're seeing more of them coming through to nutrition teams. Um, I'm not sure that we've necessarily got very good data to back that up, but it's certainly uh, talking to people up and down the country seems to be a common theme. And indeed, uh, not only at the level of nutrition support teams, but also the intestinal failure uh, um, units. Uh, are also reporting increasing numbers of, of so-called dysmotility patients who uh, are coming to not just jejunal and enteral tube feeding, but, but parenteral nutrition. The reasons for that are equally unclear at the moment. It could be greater clinician awareness, greater patient awareness. And, and I think one thing to explore is, is the role in, of social media in this as well. Uh, but at the moment, we'd have to, uh, we, we can't give a clear answer. Yes. Presumably, when you say social media, you think it's having a negative impact. I think it's certainly um, patients who we encounter seem to have quite a network of other patients that they um, that they interact with on social media and, and, and seem to uh, be uh, increasingly aware of, of options that are available to them and, and, and units that manage uh, these kind of conditions and approaches. Uh, so I, I think it's a double-edged sword, as with all things with social media. I, I think it can be helpful to have patients and, and clinicians more aware but there is a risk also that it can uh, be a forum that, that may, may spread misinformation. But, 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 so I think it's an area that as clinicians we, we've probably not actively engaged with and for the future would be something that would be useful to. Right. I mean, we'll talk about it in a bit more detail in a little while, but thinking about the MDT, do you think there'd be some use to having somebody who's quite tech savvy or social media savvy on an MDT then? Yeah, I think we need to get the basics right first. And I think that that would be a a nice wish list for the future. But I think at the minute, when when we think about the core members of what an MDT should look like, I mean, first of all, I think it's just just the very principle that uh, the complexity uh, with which patients and their relatives present in this area is such that a single clinician on their own really is not equipped uh, to look after and and manage safely uh, these presentations. I know some colleagues in, in neighbouring trusts don't yet even have a nutrition support team of any sort. So, oh, yeah. so I think the priority at the moment 
for us uh, is, is to make sure every trust has got a nutrition support team uh, which would consist of at least one, preferably more than one, medical gastroenterologist with a special interest, senior dietitians, nutrition support nurses, uh, psychologists, uh, pharmacists, and ideally uh, input as needed from radiologists and surgical colleagues. Now, I think a great um, ask for the future would be uh, IT expertise as well, but I think until we've got right. that bedrock in place, uh, you know, there's a long way to go yet. Right. And these patients are quite difficult to manage. So I, I can imagine a lot of times in these discussions, you have an agreement that the MDT suggests this is probably the best course of action. And it's not always in alignment with what the patient wants. So I think sometimes these patients are quite keen to have, a, you know, feeding tubes and so on. And perhaps that's not always the best way to go about it. So how do you ensure that you empower the, the individual patient and they're not lost in, in the discussions? Absolutely. So I think there's a role for separate multi-professional meetings where uh, we can, in, a, in an objective way as possible, consider keeping the patient's best interests at, at the centre of that, the risk and benefits of the interventions that are, that are possible and the efficacy of that. But that clearly then has to engage, that has to move on to a phase of engagement with the patient themselves. And I think the key here is good relationships as best as possible with both the patient and, and very often the carers that are involved as well. And to try and in, in as clear a uh, way as possible, both elicit their concerns and also the, the options that are available, the pros and cons, the risks and benefits of those. Okay. In, in the paper, you mentioned a term I've not heard before, but I thought was quite accurate and interesting. You said it's ethical oral feeding as a least worst option. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about this? And, and pragmatically speaking, how do you go about discussing this with patients and, and getting them on board. Yeah, it, it is, it is, it's kind of a says, does what it says on the tin type of, of, of description really. So it's a recognition that for this group of patients, oral feeding is causing symptoms and is, is both effortful in, in, in terms of sometimes the effort of ingesting it, but also the effort of, of, of the pain, the nausea, the vomiting that sometimes ensues with, with oral intake. Now, for some, of, some patients, particularly those in, who, are, who are maintaining stable nutrition, um, persisting with oral feeding in the face of ongoing symptoms uh, can be a least worst option compared with the, the risks and other new symptoms and, and, and problems which invasive, more invasive escalation of nutrition can uh, can bring along with it. So yeah, it's a recognition that um, that effortful oral feeding from, for a number of patients can be the, the least worst option. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so thinking about patients, often I'll get called to the wards at 3am in the middle of the night, uh, a patient who's not had chronic pain, on that day they've just stopped the opioids as, as is appropriate, um, but they're now struggling in lots of pain and they swear that the opioids are the only thing that help them. I understand from your paper, and obviously it's, it's well recognised that perhaps opioids are always the best thing to do, but when you're seeing a patient in the middle of the night and they're struggling quite a lot and the, the ward team are struggling quite a lot to, to manage this patient, what do you think the best way to deal with them is? Well, I, I think the, the profession is increasingly aware now of the harms of opioids. And I think we've got a lot to thank our uh, anaesthetic colleagues. The Royal College of Anaesthetists have produced a really good website for both professionals and patients called Opioid Aware to help spell out um, the kind of doses of opioids that are problematic 
and the kind of problems that, that uh, they engender. And certainly within gastroenterology, I think we're very aware that uh, chronic opioid, high-dose opioid use tends to worsen chronic pain and also has ne very negative effects on motility as well as a potential um, increase in infection risks. Now, for the junior doctor in the middle of the night, um, the, the thing that would help them is, a, is ultimately a change in the culture of the whole hospital, understanding those risks. And, and I think that takes time, it takes leadership, but when we've got a situation where everybody within the trust, both at the front line, the GPs in primary care, fellow gastro colleagues, our pain teams, um, and the nursing staff on the ward are all aware of the counterproductive um, effects of uh, chronic pain opioid use, then it becomes much more easy for that junior doctor's team to say, no, this is a hospital culture. And it, there's very clear documentation in your notes that, that in, in this case, we're not gonna be giving you additional injectable opioids. But in the absence of that culture shift, that junior doctor doesn't stand a chance in the middle of the night. We need to support each other in doing the best thing for our patients. Okay. Um, in your paper, you mentioned psychosocial distress markers. What did you mean by this? That was a really interesting term. Yes. Yeah, so so I, I guess in, in simple terms, when I'm thinking about um, the mechanisms involved in, in, in a patient's presentation, there's the, there's the sensory pain dimension, there's the, the motor muscle function, and then there are the um, additional behavioral psychosocial aspects of somebody's care. So the obvious things like anxiety and depression, um, looking back through the past history of a patient looking at their comorbidity, they may have uh, other functional somatic syndromes like fibromyalgia, um, chronic fatigue, uh, that may have overt mental health histories, and then also looking at the social dimension of surrounding relationship with, with their primary caregivers and how that plays out on the ward. So uh, particularly if they're inpatients or, or outpatients, do we see um, behaviors uh, like um, so-called splitting behaviors uh, where patients as part of their learned distress behaviors um, can create kind of challenges that lots of people are become aware of and the, and the team in discussion can, can flag up particularly when you have a, a psychologist or a liaison psychiatrist part of that team can help you become more aware of those interpersonal dynamics and how to manage them most constructively. You mentioned the mechanisms with some of these patients and I just wondered what you thought about the between a functional diagnosis and an undiagnosable disease entity at the moment. Yeah, I, I, and it's, it's a perennial issue. The, the, the word functional is a, is, is a term that there's a very broad umbrella and, and, and has both um, strengths and weaknesses. And there's no doubt in, in the functional field, we've, we've chipped away at specific mechanisms. So for example, a third of patients who would have previously been labeled as IBS with diarrhea, we now know have bile acid uh, malabsorption. So, so there'll always be, uh, we, we always have to keep an open mind to the fact that the word function, whilst in its true sense, describes a disorder of the function of that organ, um, it, there could be mechanisms yet to be uh, disclosed for, for certain patient groups. And how do you go about discussing that with patients? So sometimes patients appreciate that um, this may be a currently undiagnosable condition, but other times it, it gives them a false hope. Um, how do you strike that balance between explaining that to them? I guess coming back to the specifics of the paper itself, um, for the, uh, the range of uh, functional conditions that present with upper gut, 
symptoms, nausea, pain, food intolerance. Uh, we've gone through a, uh, the, the range of, of different diagnoses that can present in those sense. And there are specific features to each of those diagnostic categories. And there can also be, for example, with rumination syndrome, some very specific manometric and impedance uh, criteria that help you to diagnose that and give the patient a much clearer specific description of their mechanisms to help tailor your, your treatment in a more focused way. But when it comes to, for example, chronic pain, um, there's a whole different, I think, approach in terms of helping a, a patient understand how the, the pain nervous system itself could be disordered. Um, and that can sometimes be helpful to use a simple wiring diagrams, for example, of how the the, the viscerosomatic convergence works at the level of dorsal horn to help patients get an understanding of how there can be a wiring as opposed to a plumbing problem. In the paper, you also mentioned psychosocial elements. Now, there's been times where I've referred a patient for a mental health review, and it's taken you know several months before that can happen. Is there anything you can do in the meantime with these patients? Um, well, I, I think uh, a general empathic approach it always yields dividends. Um, but there's no doubt about it. There is a, a real dearth of uh, trained uh, both psychologists and liaison psychiatrists who we do have access to within gastroenterology. Now, I think that, again, requires um, some, some leadership to uh, push the business case for developing those resources. But undoubtedly, there is a long delay. I think we don't have the time, expertise or resource to deliver psychotherapies ourselves, but we do have a greater understanding of the gut-brain neuromodulators and learning that drugs like duloxetine, for example, are, alongside the traditional tricyclics are quite good visceral analgesics. And certainly whilst patients are waiting to have proper trained professionals in psychotherapies involved, those are the kind of options we can be helping them with as gastroenterologists. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned the gut-brain axis. I just wondered um, if you had any thoughts about the gut-brain microbiome axis. Do you think there's any involvement in diet with these patients? Um, well, so I, th I think the whole interaction of food with the gut innate immune system, the microbiome and the enteric nervous system is, is a fascinating area. Sometimes the food is having direct effects on, on the innate immune system. And uh, there's a fantastic paper in gastroenterology just this last year showing tight junction uh, dilation and leakage in, in the gut within seconds of blinded infusions into the duodenum of wheat or or soy or, or milk. Uh, so there's a direct effect, but there's also lots of evidence that foods are having indirect effects through the microbiome and the biogenic amines that, that are being produced by the microbiome. Now, at the moment, I don't think we've got any very good specific clear probiotic or symbiotic or antibiotic therapies for that. Uh, but I think that is an area in the future we will see developing more. Right. Um, you also mentioned some other treatments such as hypnotherapy, mindfulness, acceptance, commitment therapy. What yep. sort of a role do they have then? So, uh, I mean, some of them, for example, hypnotherapy, extremely well evidenced in functional gut disorders. And again, the problem is more one of access. And the other problem I would say is that the, the patients who present to our nutrition clinics have often got a, a much higher level of complexity of psychosocial distress and need than uh, maybe lower level patients with um, more milder symptoms 
uh, or more milder IBS. So the level of expertise of psychologists involved, I think, needs to be that much higher as well. And, and same true of liaison psychiatrists, because sometimes we have to think about the in interface with eating disorders, with the so-called avoidant restrictive food intake disorders. And sometimes we need liaison psychiatry uh, advice on the borderline of when we may be dealing with a more sectionable type um, eating disorder. So um, the point I was uh, building to was the need for more senior experienced psychologists and certainly the ones that I interact with on a regular basis will tell me there's a lot of commonalities in many of these different types of specific psychotherapy. Um, so many of them have a, a significant element of relaxation, whether that's hypnotherapy or mindfulness, probably working more on the stress axis. But then there's also a need to take things into more complex areas like interpersonal psychodynamics. So I do think, again, once again, the common theme here is, is, is often coming back to the need for, um, for these more challenging, more uh, complex patients to have um, ex access to experienced high-level psychological input. Okay. So you mentioned how important uh, trained mental health specialists are. Who do you think is in the best position to manage these patients? Do you think that they should stay under gastroenterologists? Or do you think with some of the multi-system overlap with things like encephalomyelitis and fibromyalgia, it's, it's almost the dawning of a new specialty? Well, I think absolutely right, Sonny. And the Royal College of Psychiatrists uh, did produce um, some uh, guidance and recommendations within the last couple of years, uh, advising that every large trust should have a multidisciplinary team led by liaison psychiatry that uh, engages with multiply symptomatic uh, complex patients. So, and, and I certainly feel talking to colleagues in my own trust um, that that is going to be an essential thing to develop for every large trust. Gastroenterologists are recommended to be a part of that group because of a common uh, presentation of gastroenterology, but also neurologists, uh, cardiologists. There's a range of specialties, um, but gastroenterology does seem to be particularly involved with um, the more complex end of, of these multiply symptomatic patients. Thinking about some of the medical treatments that we can offer then, you mentioned buspirone in the paper. I must admit, I'm not very familiar with that. Can you tell me a bit more about it and when you think about using it? So there's one trial uh, published by Yan Tax Group uh, for functional dyspepsia in patients who've had uh, a gastric emptying study that shows a failure of accommodation in the gastric fundus. Busperone is a 5-HT1A agonist, and in their paper, in that small number of patients, they showed improvement in both symptoms in terms of food intake tolerance, and they demonstrated the gastric emptying study showed improvement in fundic relaxation. Now, um, there's a small study, the dose they use, busperone, 10 milligrams three times a day. In my own clinical practice, based on that small case study with patients who've got both symptoms suggestive of functional dyspepsia and have had a gastric emptying study showing that accommodation reflex, uh, disorder. I've tried it on a few occasions. I have to say, in that small experience, it's not been transformative in any patient. Right. Okay. Fine. And just think a bit more about the, the technicalities. You mentioned uh, the peg with general extensions and the benefit yeah. to a low neutral insertion point. Do you have any tips about how to achieve this? I think one of the problems with peg tube insertions is that there's a, often a, a, quite a number of um, endoscopists doing just a very small number. So I think one thing that would help would be to focus the expertise uh, and have um, one or two or, or a few dedicated people who are doing a lot of them. So uh, because like any procedure, the, the higher the volume, the better you get. But pegs have been some, sometimes a bit of a Cinderella area. Um, so always aim, if you can, for the lowest antral site by transillumination. And sometimes it may be uh, necessary 
desirable to have radiology support to help with that if there's no clear transillumination. Now, you mentioned that website for uh, opioid management. Can you just remind me what yes. that website was? So it's the Royal College of Anaesthetists. If you just put opioid aware Royal College mm-hmm. of Anaesthetists in, in your web bar, in your Google Chrome bar, it'll come up. And it's it's really helpful resource. It's got something for professionals, something for patients. It's got an opioid dose calculator for, for equivalent, trying to work out well, how much fentanyl is, is a more oral morphine equivalent. And, and so it's a very helpful resource. And also one of the messages it enforces is the difficult message that sometimes even if there's no other painkiller available, patients can be better off on nothing than on high-dose opioids. Right, okay. Are there any other websites or resources that you use that are quite valuable? Um, So I referred in the paper, of course, to the NICE guidance on on malnutrition and and when to intervene or not appropriately. Um, There are also joint RCP-BSG guidelines on ethics around um, complex feeding dilemmas that, that play into it somewhat. Dr. Payne, often with these patients, when you try and approach them and explain that they have a functional diagnosis, or perhaps even amongst the specialty ourselves, we don't always accept that this is a real condition or something that we need to perhaps proactively treat. How do you go about tackling that stigma? What I've hoped to have done in the paper is go beneath the broad functional title, if you like, to the subtitles to think about the specific types of conditions that patients present with, such as the difference between cyclical vomiting, cannabis hyperemesis, chronic unexplained nausea and vomiting, um, the specific criteria around rumination syndrome, the difference between functional dyspepsia, gastroparesis, small bowel dysfunction. Uh, There are um, some objective criteria uh, manometrically, for example, to making some of those diagnoses. And I think the more specific we can be with the diagnostic label, uh, the more helpful that can be. Now, sometimes that's not possible, particularly when we're talking about uh, more sensory chronic pain side of things. But even there, Uh, There can be, uh, sometimes with chronic continuous abdominal pain, for example, specific clinical findings such as allodynia uh, when examining the abdomen that can help give you a firmer basis for both diagnosis and discussion with the patient. Perfect. Dr. Payne, that's been fascinating. It's been really useful to get some of your thoughts on this. Um, Have you got any final comments that you'd like to make? I suppose my, my final comment would be the, the, the motivation uh, behind the paper was the real life experience of trying to do our very best uh, for patients uh, who are struggling with complex conditions. And I would just encourage uh, folk to find like-minded individuals around them to build up teams so that we can uh, both help ourselves to make the best decisions for these patients, but also to support our patients with the best resources that we possibly can. Perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome.